The scripture reading is from Daniel chapter 11, verse 36 through chapter 12, verse 4. It can be found on page 749 in the Black Bibles. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. The word of the Lord. Well, good evening. I'm, uh, as you can see, going to be on the ground uh, for uh, our time of preaching together. It's one of the benefits of being a large human being. Um, hopefully all of you guys can see me from where, from where you're sitting, um, but it is a joy to be together with you guys this evening. Um, I was remarking earlier uh, that the communions or the, the, the song during the offertory, I first heard that song uh, a couple of months ago when I was working out at LA Fitness, somehow it came on my Spotify uh, list while I was doing squats and the juxtaposition of the lyrics, um, not I but Christ in me, made me feel like I could really lift the weight, um, but somehow I, I far prefer hearing the song in this context. Um, so uh, before we consider our, our word together this evening though, would you, would you please pray with me now? 
Our Father, we come before you this morning, this evening, as we consider your word. Lord, be at work. We pray, be at work in our hearts and our minds, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your eyes, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was in high school, I, I didn't really enjoy reading for pleasure uh, and until I found this amazing new book series. Um, and I, we- I read book after book in this series. It was a widely uh, popular uh, end time series called Left Behind. I would imagine that many of y'all have read that, uh, read that book series as well. And during that season of my life, I was, I was reading one of the books while I was traveling on an airplane with a couple of friends. And uh, reading the book, one of my friends leans over and is asking me questions about it. And what, why am I so interested in the, in the subject of the end times? He wasn't a Christian. So I was excited for the opportunity to share my thoughts and my faith with him. But in my youth and in my exuberance, the conversation managed to escalate to kind of a ridiculous proportion where somehow I ended up making a bet with him that within 40 years the world was going to end. It was, it was not the, the wisest conversation I'd ever ended up in. Um, and if somehow my uninformed and ridiculous statement turns out to be true, we have about 22 years left. Um, I don't really like the way I engaged in that conversation at all. And I am very grateful and thankful uh, that God has been at work in, in, in my life such that my theology has changed uh, since high school. But I tell that story because when it comes to the biblical concept of prophecy, we often take things too far, as I did. It can become like a game of trying to match mysterious prophecies of the Bible to historical events or current events and expectations of the future. If we're not careful, we can read too much into what the Bible says and to make incredibly bold and misplaced predictions about the future, like I did. But when read rightly, we see that these mysteries, that these are mysterious visions that God gives to his people. They are his grace to his people in either anticipation of or in the midst of oppression. Prophecies like the one we just read in Daniel reveal the reality of the world in such a way that God's people can see and rightly interpret what they're going through. Although they may be suffering, they can be reassured that God is in control right, and that he will ultimately win. And so as we engage our passage this evening, we need to remember that fact that it is too easy to overinterpret, to make the passage say more than it is actually saying. So we're going to focus on the passage in two particular ways. First, the consistent conflict in which the people of God are engaged in this world. And then second, we're going to focus on the final judgment and the hope that there is in that light. But first, let's look at the conflict. There's a lot that we're glossing over between what Clay preached about in Daniel chapter 10 last week and where we even began our reading in Daniel chapter 11 today. In the section that we didn't read, almost the 35 verses prior, Daniel begins by seeing yet another vision. A vision of the near future or what seems like the near future. Our passage begins to pick up at the tail end of this vision. Before we look closely at Daniel's vision, I want us to try something. Um, 
I don't want us to try something that may seem a little bit strange, uh, and it's going to hopefully help us understand the timing of what's going on in this passage. From our vantage point, I want you to look out the window um, at Transco Tower. Hopefully you all can see it. I don't know if you can't. As you look and go back out into the parking lot, you will hopefully see it. Transco is the tallest building that you can see out of that window. And if you keep looking out there, just above the tree line, you will see two twin buildings as well in about the same general direction. From our perspective here on Silver Road, it is hard to tell which building is in front, whether it's Transco Tower or the Four Leaf Towers, or maybe they're right next to each other. All we can tell for sure is that these buildings are south of us. But if we were to go down Post Oak and drive south for a couple of miles, we'd find ourselves in between the buildings. And we'd realize that the four leaf towers come first and Transco Tower is much further down the road, at least another mile or two. A similar kind of condensing of near and far is happening here in Daniel 11. And this is what theologians refer to as periscoping. From Daniel's perspective, everything in this vision is the future, right? Everything is south, so to speak. But that doesn't mean that everything is still in the future from our perspective, 2,600 years after the book of Daniel was written. No, it it probably isn't. Although some people read the vision of Daniel as still being entirely still in our future, it makes more sense to understand time in the same way that we understand space as we looked out the window together. That is, from Daniel's perspective, it must have been difficult, if not impossible, to distinguish between the near future and the distant future. Periscoping takes all elements of the future, both near and far, and combines them into one larger whole. And as the current readers and hearers of Daniel 11, us in this room, we've traveled farther down the timeline of Daniel's vision, and from our perspective now, we see that some of the vision has already come to pass, while some of it is yet to come. So let's more specifically look at what has already occurred. And then we're going to look at why the vision may matter to us. The beginning of chapter 11 is a comprehensive vision of the next hundred years of the life of God's people. It begins with their return to Jerusalem and the surrounding area. The Persians ruled over Israel. And at that point in time... Um, what, what, what the vision picks up on is these kings who are rich and strong and mighty. There are kings from the south and kings from the north ruling and making alliances. They're waging war and casting down tens of thousands. Then there somehow is, is fear and rage and withdrawal. There's seduction through flattery, stumbling by sword and flame. There's captivity and plunder, as the verses say. This vision is meant to prepare God's people for the immense conflict that is raging over the land, beginning beginning with Cyrus, who is there in, in chapter 11, and then his successors. Daniel's vision captures the start of a conflict between the Greeks and the Persians. It then pays attention to the Greek side of the conflict. As, as a great king arises, that great king being Alexander the Great, he dies suddenly. And his kingdom is then divided into four with four successors. And our passage then follows two of those successors. The king of the north, which is the Seleucid dynasty of Syria. 
and the king of the south, which is the Ptolemies of Egypt. And as God's people stand by helplessly watching these great powers rise up and conquer each other, God's people are there just caught in the middle. This vision itself is God's grace to them. If we were in their shoes, would we not also be tempted to think, as they surely were tempted to think, God, where are you? You say that you are the creator of heaven and earth, yet here we are, victims in this armed struggle. You say that you are a God, that you are our God and we are your people, but somehow we are still exiles in our own land. This vision is meant to remind God's people that in the midst of this struggle, in the midst of the powerlessness, God hasn't forgotten them. He has not forsaken them. He is not merely a God who makes promises, but he is a God who keeps his promises. God has never left his people. And the vision describes hundreds of years of conflict, power grabs and subjugation of them. Yet despite all the horror of this vision, it actually is meant to be somewhat hopeful. Hopeful for us as we understand history. God is is not the one who is orchestrating the hurt and evil, but he is using this never-ending conflict, this game of the throne, for the throne, so to speak, for his own purposes. Through these wars and conquests, the Lord prepared the soil of the gospel to take root and to make smooth the pathway of the kingdom of God. As an example of this, Alexander the Great's conquest, he conquered hundreds of different tribes and nations and they were unified under his particular single kingdom. And what actually began to outlast or what outlasted the kingdom was the common tongue, the common language which each of these groups learned to speak and that is called Koine Greek, which literally means common Greek. This shared language, again shared only because of this war and conquest, made it easier excuse me, made it easier in later years for God's word to be translated and circulated more freely as the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. The details of Daniel's vision are violent, they're shocking, they're scary. These details of selfish ambition, sacrilege, and suffering, right, this is a time of trouble as has never been yet seen, as it says, Yet intermingled with the words of death and destruction are these words of hope and perseverance. God is using these conflicts and these sufferings of the kingdoms and these people for his eternal kingdom purposes. Through Daniel's vision, God warns his people of what is to come. He tells them that the conquests and the wars, they're going to overtake them. He tells them that the Israelites in the promised land will be caught in the crossfire between northern and southern kingdoms. That the people of God are gonna suffer these wars at the, at the hands of the kingdoms of men as they seek their own glory, as they seek their own power and their own might, claiming thus their own divine prerogative as a result. But that's not all. all right, we, we are, as they are, familiar with rulers overcome by selfish ambition. And we too are familiar with foreign wars But Daniel's vision speaks not just generally of wars and nations, it speaks of very specific historical people. As Clay mentioned a few weeks ago, the abomination of desolation referenced here in Daniel's vision in verse 31 is Antiochus Epiphanes. 
He is the king that's mentioned from our passage today. And this king, whose persecutions of God's people are recorded in history books, it serves as a foreshadowing, a foreshadowing for all subsequent leaders who both persecute God's people and lead them astray. Right? He serves as a type of what the Bible calls an antichrist. And as Clay made clear, the term antichrist is, is pretty loaded these days. Right? People more often than not use it to just talk about folks that they don't like, maybe whose policies they don't like. But the Bible is clear that there are many antichrists. And that God's people need to be wise in how we think about them. We need to be wise because an antichrist can be both sweet talking and destructive. An antichrist leads God's people away from relationship with God himself. And that is what Antiochus Epiphanes exemplifies. Thus the vision not only paints the people of God as being caught in the crossfire the crossfire of this conflict, but they are, as one theologian said, also caught in the crosshairs of it as well, right? They're not merely innocent bystanders. They are the very victims of the onslaught. They are the targets of the violence and oppression intended to lead God's people away from him. So in what ways do you feel like the target of violence and oppression this evening? In what ways do you feel like you are being led away from God and his purposes? Maybe all of this talk of war and subjugation feels unfamiliar, perhaps even foreign to you. I know in some ways it does to me. Maybe you don't feel like a victim of persecution at all. Right? We, we hear stories daily of, of Christians in other parts of the world who are being persecuted for their faith. And, and that level of oppression just simply doesn't exist in this nation by God's grace. Perhaps then your suffering has come in the form of oppressive realities of our broken world. Perhaps your suffering has come in the form of things like Alzheimer's or cancer, infertility, or even maybe the death of a loved one. I don't need to guess what has caused or is causing your particular suffering because you know it and you're dealing with it daily and perhaps you're even dealing with it right now. But as you live it, in the midst of your pain, have you ever thought why? why? Why is God doing this to me? Why in God's world is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this suffering? And perhaps you read the Tim Keller quote at the front of your bulletin, because as Christians, we know that God does not tell us why we suffer, nor does he spare us from that hurt. But the suffering that we endure, he uses for his glorious end. God uses the pain and the brokenness of this world, the things that Satan means to draw us away from God, to bring his kingdom. God uses these things to bring his kingdom ever more into our lives and into our world. Our suffering is meaningful, right? It's meaningful because it's intended to drive us to him. If we respond to him, if we turn to him as the source of life, we find that he is indeed the rock that he says he is, Right, and he is our stability in a time of need. This past week, I watched a documentary about the U.S. women's gymnastics abuse scandal. Um, as many of you probably know by now, the physician Larry Nasser was a serial abuser of Olympic level, um, college level, and even younger female gymnasts through his almost 30 years of being a physician in the gymnastics world. Although there were a few attempts to bring light into this darkness, these accusations were always 
merely swept under the rug until a few years ago. A woman named Rachel Den Hollander, a Christian who grew up in Michigan near where Larry Nasser uh, practiced, um, was actually one of Nasser's victims in her teen years. And as is often the case with victims of abuse, Den Hollander rationalized her abuse right, for a long period of time. She suffered in silence for more than a decade. Finally, she began to open up about her past. Right? First, she told her husband about the abuse that she suffered. And she began to wrestle with God and with others over it. Then in 2016, in the midst of her early steps in, in, in reconciling and working through the trauma, Den Hollander read a newspaper article about the widespread abuse in USA Gymnastics. And she realized that the statute of limitations for her case had not passed as she had previously thought. So she made a report to a newspaper and the police about everything that Nasser had done to her. She was the first person to do so, not anonymously. Although Den Hollander knew that publicly identifying herself as a victim would make her life very difficult, and it did, she hoped that by putting her name out there, she would strengthen and encourage other victims to come forward and bring justice against Nasser. Because of her bravery, many other girls, I think almost over 100 uh, other girls and women did begin to come forward, having brought their grief and their suffering, having brought her grief and her suffering before the Lord, having publicly acknowledged the immense suffering in her life, having truly walked through the valley of the shadow of death of her own trauma, Den Hollander came through to the other side into the light of Jesus to stand bravely as a leader of other women who needed it. In an interview about the ordeal, Den Hollander says this, one of the areas where Christians don't do well is in acknowledging the devastation of the wound. We can tend to gloss over the devastation of any kind of suffering, but especially assault. With Christian platitudes like, like God works all things together for good or God is sovereign. Those are very good and glorious biblical truths, but when they are misapplied in a way to dampen the horror of evil, they ultimately dampen the goodness of God. Goodness and darkness exist as opposites. And if we pretend that the darkness isn't dark, it dampens the beauty of the light. The first step for Den Hollander and the first step for all of us who have suffered, and that, that truly is all of us here this evening, is to acknowledge that the suffering is real and that it hurts. As Den Hollander said, it is devastating. In the light of the gospel, as she dealt with her suffering, she was able to live and speak truth for those who needed it from her. She realized that it that it was in her pain, in her suffering, that God was bringing about his kingdom to bear in the lives of others. Had she maybe rushed too quickly to the solution, she would not have been able to touch those girls in the same way that she did, who were still suffering in silence, right? She might have cheapened their experience or, or been crushed under the gravity of what they had gone through. But her calling in that moment was to be salt and light, having worked through her particular issues, and to speak on behalf of others. So in what ways, what ways might God be calling you to engage your suffering? For you who are Christians this evening, in what ways is God calling you to be salt and light? 
having moved maybe through your own wounds, to proclaim God's good news by word and deed to others who are struggling similarly? Have you experienced anxiety and depression? Might you be a comforting and truth-filled voice for someone in need? Have you lost a job? Might you be the hands and feet of Christ to someone who's unemployed? Have you experienced a broken relationship? Have you experienced addiction? So on and so forth. How might God be at work in the midst of your own story? Those details of your personal story that you would rather forget, right? Because it's almost too painful sometimes to keep looking back at it. Those are the very places where God's work in your life will shine forth most clearly, like a flashlight in the dark. Those are the places where we are called to acknowledge and to do so for God's glory. Only when we acknowledge the devastation of the wound, as she said, the darkness of the darkest parts of our lives, can we see the already beautiful light of God. Only then can we truly understand God's goodness. And I want to be clear that this is not all of us right now. My guess is that not all of you have come to grips with your past suffering or your past wounds. And that's okay. Many of those wounds are still maybe even forming right now. Some of you might be in the very midst of deep, dark wounds and deep, dark pain. But as you are able, face your wounds, whatever that might be. Maybe yours is a smaller wound and therefore it might not be as difficult to engage. But perhaps it's pretty large something massive and let me say this as as someone who grew up here in Houston literally a mile or two down the road it is so easy to feel the pressures and to want to hide our scars in this city it feels easier to continue going about life pretending that you are as healthy and as whole as you look on the outside rather than admit that you are hurting This is a city for doers where it's often really, really challenging to be vulnerable and to show our weakness because in doing so, we think it may cost us something. It probably will, but it's going to be worth it. It might cost you something to deal with your wounds, but as the quote I read earlier says, it is only in truly acknowledging the darkness that we can experience the joy of God's light. So, if you don't know where to begin with that, why don't you begin by talking to me? I would love to talk to you. Come talk to any of our elders or any of our pastors. If not there, during the time of communion, we have fellow members up here who'd love to pray with you. And if none of that feels very comfortable, please feel free to reach out to the Christ the King Counseling Center. That's a great place to start as well, or any other counseling center. But engage, face your suffering and face your wounds. Stare the darkness of your suffering in the face knowing that the light of our Lord will shine into every nook and cranny of your life, bringing healing and hope. For those of you who have dealt with your wounds, don't hide from them, right? These scars are reminders that it is through broken jars of clay like you and me that God's glory shows forth. I urge you use this day or this week to consider how God might use you to encourage someone who is suffering. We don't need to gloss over our hurt, nor do we need to offer platitudes of theological encouragement. Instead, we need to engage our pain, knowing that our suffering is not meaningless and that ultimately God deals with all injustices. 
whether they've been inflicted upon us or whether they've been inflicted by us. And that leads to the second point, which is the judgment and the hope of the passage. Right, if we turn our attention to the opening verses of Daniel 12, we see that Daniel's vision still contains something that is yet to come, that is still in our future. There's a day coming when those who are asleep in the dust of the earth, they shall awake. The Bible paints a picture of a final time when all who have died, they will be raised from the dead for an ultimate judgment. God will serve as the judge of the world and this is both a terrifying and a hopeful reality. For those of you who have suffered injustices, you don't need to take vengeance yourself because you can trust that whether or not justice is served in this lifetime, justice will ultimately be served to all of those who deserve it. All evil will be judged. And those who have done wickedly, who have attempted to take advantage of those, of others who have abused the innocent or who have harmed others for personal gain, all will be held to final account. The vision is telling Daniel and all of God's people, including us, that there will be an ultimate judgment on the false kingdoms of this world. That the power games and the wars that selfish and worldly leaders utilize for their own ends they will be judged according to God's justice. And that reality should give us great comfort. Again, we can and we should seek justice here and now, but our identity doesn't need to be found in it. We can trust that God will ultimately deal rightly with those who have done wrong and that no evil or wicked deed will go unpunished. But with this comfort should also come a very sobering reality of these verses as well, are not we also left to ourselves the very wicked leaders full of selfish ambition and spite that this passage speaks about? Have we not also harmed others and done the unjust thing? Have we not also murdered others in our own heart? Have we not also slandered or gossiped about others who are made in the image of God? God's judgment and his just punishment apply here as well. I would imagine that many of us balk at the harshness of the vision. God speaks of those who will be resurrected unto everlasting contempt. And for many of us, we can either kind of gloss over this fact, we can ignore it, or we can outright reject what Daniel is saying here. Why is divine judgment so hard, so hard to think about? I think because it tells us something way too true about us. We often don't believe that we are anywhere as bad as the Bible says that we are. We believe that we're, that we're mostly doing the right thing, that we're decent people who've done decent things and made decent lives for ourselves. Our good mostly outweighs our bad, we think. So why is God so harsh? This promise of final judgment tells us something truly grave about our sin, that our disobedience and rebellion against God, our mistreatment of others in our hearts and in our deeds cannot and will not go unpunished. And apart from Christ, we are destined for eternal judgment. So for all of us here this evening, take the time to feel the weight of what God is saying. You are far worse than you think you are. You are a victim of pain and suffering, yes, but you are also one who sins against others and sins against God. That's true whether you are a Christian or not this evening. So though, for those of you who are not Christians, we are so glad that you're here. 
you've come to the right place. We are all a people of sin. We all struggle to see the realities of the awfulness of the sin of our own hearts. I know I do. But there is another aspect to this final judgment and it is good news. Daniel says that there are those who will be resurrected unto everlasting life. How is this possible, right? If we are all sinful, if we all deserve divine wrath, how does God promise that some will be resurrected unto life? The answer is that only those who have been found in Christ, those are the ones who rise as Christ was raised from the dead. Jesus took our place bearing the shame, bearing the contempt that we deserve. But as we submit ourselves to him and as we place our faith and our life in his hands, we are promised that we will ultimately be raised to life everlasting. The one like a son of man has come in Christ. And the Bible says that as we place our faith in him, that we participate in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. So for all of us here who are more sinful than we truly believe, the good news is that we are far more loved by a sacrificial and loving God than we can ever truly know. Much like Rachel Den Hollander described, we need to understand the pit of the darkness of our own souls in order to understand the glorious light of the future resurrection hope that we have in Jesus. There's a couple of very fast application points I want to make as well. The hope of God's resurrection should have practical hope for us as well. For those among us who've lost loved ones, do not grieve as those without hope. Trust that a day is coming when all will be resurrected from the dead because death has ultimately been defeated by Jesus himself. Maybe others of you are afraid of death or maybe even afraid of everlasting life. Place your trust in our good God, our good God who did not spare even his own son, but gave him up so that we might be forever with him. And for those of y'all who do not know Jesus this evening, I would urge you to take this passage seriously. Look to your own hearts and see the depths to which the darkness goes, just like it does in mine. And place your trust in Jesus, the light of the world and our everlasting hope. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this evening in light of the reality that we do not even want to see the depths of our own sin. Give us courage to see it for what it truly is and grant us your grace that we might turn back toward you in faith, trusting that you will bring righteous justice where it is needed and that you pardon even us who do not deserve it. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.